Resuscitation is an absolute cornerstone of emergency medicine. And for over 35 years, important discoveries in resuscitation research have been made right here in our community, including EKG technology. If we miniaturized it and put it on the ambulance, we could diagnose heart attacks in people's living rooms and reduce the time to definitive treatment. This was the ability for the first time to take the electrocardiogram to the patient. AED devices. We helped develop automated external defibrillators. Once they were developed, we implemented the public access defibrillation program. This was a multi-center clinical trial in 24 cities throughout the United States, and Milwaukee was a major site for this study. And CPR protocols. We have to be increasing survival with normal neurological outcome, returning them to their previous life. And this offered the opportunity to potentially achieve that. Discover groundbreaking resuscitation research. Everything I'm gonna discuss are original ideas and discoveries that have been generated out of this department's resuscitation research center over the past 35 years. Inside this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Welcome to CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Belmer. CTSI Discovery Radio is brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. The CTSI is a consortium of researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Children's Wisconsin, Freighter Hospital, Versity Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Zablocki VA Medical Center. The CTSI works collaboratively across all of our member institutions. Our mission is advancing health through research and discovery. Perhaps the single most critical component of emergency medicine is successful resuscitation of a patient in life-threatening distress. Nobody knows this better than Dr. Tom Ofterheide, Professor of Emergency Medicine and Director of the Resuscitation Research Center at the Medical College of Wisconsin. He's an internationally recognized expert in the field of emergency cardiac arrest care. And last fall, he presented a two-hour retrospective on his 35 years of groundbreaking resuscitation research. Today, we have the opportunity to hear portions of Dr. Ofterheide's presentation, titled Original Discovery in Resuscitation Research, a 35-Year History, although he shares that more accurately. I suppose I should have changed the title of this talk to Original Discovery in the Resuscitation Research Center at the Medical College of Wisconsin, a 35-Year History. Because everything I'm going to discuss are original ideas and discoveries that have been generated out of this department's resuscitation research center over the past 35 years. Next, some important disclosures. I have a number of grants from the National Institutes of Health. Whatever I talk about today is my responsibility and does not necessarily represent the views of the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. 
I'm going to be talking a lot about unapproved, unlabeled uses of biomedical devices. It's important that you understand that I have absolutely no financial interest whatsoever in any device or any company. And he adds that the 35 years of research work he's presenting are prospective interventional clinical trials in humans that we felt offered the opportunity to improve survival and quality of life for the patients we treat. All of these studies require an investigational device exemption from the FDA, and all of them were funded through the National Institutes of Health. And with that, Dr. Ofterheide begins his presentation. It's always best to start at the beginning. This man, Joseph Darren, is my hero, and I would submit for your consideration he should be your hero also. Joe Darren was the first chair of this Department of Emergency Medicine and founded the Freydert Emergency Department. Shortly thereafter, he founded the first emergency medicine residency in Wisconsin, and I believe the fourth in the country, one that I benefited from in my own personal education. Dr. Joseph Darren also developed and implemented the Flight for Life program. He established a level one trauma center that we have here today, and had the vision for and implemented the Milwaukee County EMS system. Out of our own Department of Emergency Medicine at Freighter Hospital, it provides one of the most rigorous training programs for paramedics in the United States. Dr. Ofterheide notes that in the development of Milwaukee County's EMS, or Emergency Medical Services System, Joe had the vision that if you didn't collect data, you couldn't understand how well you were doing, you couldn't benchmark, you couldn't implement quality improvement, and you couldn't get better. So at the very inception in 1976, Joe funded in perpetuity five individuals who had nothing else to do except collect data on Milwaukee County EMS runs. And we have every single run that has been performed in Milwaukee since 1976 on computer. The data that's been collected has been invaluable. It is a wealth of information. We use it daily, and it has been a source of improvement since the beginning. He developed a culture of EMS excellence, excellence in care, and a commitment to doing research to improve patient outcome in Milwaukee. This man's vision developed models of excellence that 50 years later are models of excellence nationally and internationally. And based on this, he believes a debt of gratitude is owed to Dr. Joseph Darren for his early pioneering work in emergency medicine. So that's where we began, and that's where I began, and I have always been interested in emergency cardiac care. Emergency cardiac care is a classic emergency medicine disease. It is potentially fatal, and it is absolutely time critical. How time critical? He talks about a study early in his career on thrombolytic therapy, or the use of drugs to dissolve blood clots, the main cause of heart attack and stroke. It's called the GC1 trial that demonstrated that if you could give thrombolytics in the first hour following the onset of a heart attack, you reduced mortality roughly by 50%. It also showed that if you waited another hour or two, you reduced that benefit by half down to about 25%. And if you waited another hour or two, you were down to 17%. And if you waited longer than that, there was no benefit whatsoever. 
At that time, Dr. Ofterheide and his cohorts did a follow-up study. We did a study of 211 heart attack patients who came to the emergency department and then got thrombolytic therapy and found that the average time from ED arrival to thrombolytic therapy was essentially one and a half hours. So we then went and talked to the 211 doctors who treated these patients and said, how fast did you give thrombolytics? The average perceived time by those physicians was 30 minutes, one third of the actual documented time. And from this study, an important paper was written and published. This paper did several things. First, it demonstrated that we had a national public health problem. And number two, that treating physicians didn't perceive they had a problem. And if you didn't understand that you had a problem, you couldn't do anything about it. And that developed into the National Heart Attack Alert Program to measure door to needle time, now door to balloon time, objectively demonstrate it, establish benchmarks, and improve quality of care. Throughout his presentation, Dr. Ofterheide shared his insights and expertise in pioneering many resuscitation diagnostic tools and devices, beginning with the evolution of the electrocardiogram, or EKG. Now at that time, and still today, the only way you can diagnose a heart attack is with a 12-lead electrocardiogram. At that time, it was about the size of a shopping cart. It was only located in a hospital or a clinic. It was printed out on a piece of paper. It was actually heat-sensitive paper, and it was a heated stylet that produced a black line on a piece of paper, and it had to be interpreted by a physician. Essentially, what we did was we brought the patient to the machine. Dr. Ofterheide envisioned something different, something better. I was working with Marquette Electronics at that time, developing computerized interpretation of 12-lead ECGs. And I looked at a recent electrocardiograph that they did. And I said, you know, I bet if we digitized this, miniaturized it, and put it on the ambulance, we could diagnose heart attacks in people's living rooms and facilitate and reduce the time to definitive treatment. So, a prototype device was created. It was the first digitized electrocardiogram. It's got a phone, a modem, and an antenna. And we put it in a 30-pound steel suitcase. It was absolute cutting-edge technology. This, by the way, is in the museum on the fourth floor of this building. It's still sitting there. But while clumsy and archaic by today's technological standards, in its day... This was the ability, for the first time, to take the electrocardiogram to the patient. We went to Milwaukee County EMS at that time and said, who wants to carry around a 30-pound steel suitcase for the next five years to every patient's bedside that you see and determine whether or not this is an effective treatment? Any takers? Believe it or not, our very own West Dallas and Wauwatosa EMS raised their hands and said, Doc, we want to do this. And they said, you know, Doc, if we could do this and we could reduce our time delay, we're all for it. So we did the feasibility, we did the safety, the diagnostic accuracy, and the reductions in time delay to hospital-based treatment with West Dallas and Wauwatosa EMS. I don't know anyone more fundamentally interested in helping their patients and increasing their survival and outcome than paramedics. It has been a privilege to work with them. 
With the help of those departments and through many prospective studies, Dr. Ofterheide and his cohorts essentially demonstrated over and over again that we had reduced this one and a half hours from arrival to treatment to 24 minutes on average just by getting an out-of-hospital electrocardiogram and expediting and assuring that information, including the electrocardiogram, was received by the receiving ED. It's highly motivating and substantially reduces the time. And as a result of this successful discovery, the American Heart Association incorporated it into its international AHA guidelines and recommended that out-of-hospital 12-lead ECGs be used whenever possible as a Class 1 recommendation. By the way, today's portable EKGs are no longer in a clumsy 30-pound metal suitcase, but instead... It is a software program incorporated into every defibrillator in the world and represents the central diagnostic approach for heart attack in most communities throughout the world. It provides the shortest time possible to definitive treatment, smaller heart attacks, and higher quality of life, and has reduced mortality from acute myocardial infarction by 38% in the United States alone. Next, Dr. Ofterheide shares research discoveries related to automated external defibrillator, or AED, devices used in the event of cardiac arrest. First, though, he makes the distinction between heart attack and cardiac arrest. A heart attack is a blood clot in a coronary artery that obstructs blood flow and causes a portion of the heart to die. However, the heart continues to beat. The patient may be uncomfortable but alert, and the survival today is well over 95%. In contrast, cardiac arrest is just about the opposite. The heart suddenly stops beating. Intervention needs to occur immediately if there's any hope for survival. And the overall national survival rate for cardiac arrest is around 7.9%. The public health impact of cardiac arrest is significant. There are between five and 600,000 cardiac arrests each year in the United States, and there's half a million deaths due to this problem. It is the third highest cause of death in the United States. And he explains why. There's two big problems. One is that defibrillation by EMS providers occurs too late. And the second is that the hemodynamics provided during CPR are inadequate. So while AEDs can be effective as a life-saving measure against cardiac arrest, timing is critical. There's a 10% reduction in survival for every minute following collapse to defibrillation, and the potential for survival reaches and approaches zero at 10 minutes. Recognizing this, Dr. Ofterheide and others at MCW took action. We helped actually develop automated external defibrillators. We sent a lot of our Milwaukee County EMS data to help assist in the algorithm now incorporated into AEDs. And once they were developed, we implemented the public access defibrillation program. This was a prospective randomized multi-center clinical trial of over a thousand public locations in 24 cities throughout the United States and Milwaukee was a major site for this study. This landmark AED clinical trial was rooted in the fundamental question, would a person who does not have a duty to respond, if they were trained, appropriately recognize cardiac arrest, dial 911, grab an AED, 
go do CPR and apply the AED, defibrillate without harming themselves or bystanders, and actually confer benefit to the patient? The answer was a resounding yes. In fact, Milwaukee saw one of the first ever public access defibrillation resuscitations. And it was brought to you by the checkout person at your grocery store. She was in her early 20s. She was terrified to do it, but she just did everything right, and she saved this man's life. What a phenomenal outcome. The public access defibrillation study was published, but there was still an important hurdle to overcome. Before we could change and have lay people do this, it was currently against the law. No one without 125 hours of training and an EMT certification could actually defibrillate. To remedy this, two sets of laws needed to be changed. First was the federal law. So I went out to Washington, lobbied to pass the cardiac arrest survival law, and so the federal law got changed. But changing our state's law involved a serendipitous encounter with then-Wisconsin Governor Tommy Thompson. I worked with the American Heart Association. We drafted the legislation. It had passed the Senate needed to go to the House, and then was going to go to the governor for sign-off. So with that background, I got on a plane, and who should be on the plane in the very first row? Tommy Thompson. 20 minutes after takeoff, Dr. Ofterheide heard this dreaded overhead announcement. Is there a doctor on the plane? I looked behind me, and there was a woman in great distress. And next to her in the aisle seat was her husband that, to me, looked dead. He jumped into action with assistance from a nurse also on board. The man had no pulse. The plane had no AED. Fortunately, the man was not in cardiac arrest. His pulse was restored, and he survived. Relieved, Dr. Ofterheide recognized a golden opportunity. And when the dust settled, I said, you know, Tommy Thompson's up there in the first row. He can't get up and run away. I hauled out my little card, introduced myself, told him that this man had a cardiac arrest. The only thing that would save his life is an AED and that AEDs are going to save a lot of Wisconsin lives. And I would hope that he would consider supporting it when it came across his desk. The governor listened, agreed, and signed it into law in Wisconsin. He called me personally about three months after that saying, I want you to come out to Madison for the bill signing ceremony. He then became head of the Department of Health and Human Services, and a second time, years later, he called me up and asked me to consult for distribution of AEDs in federal buildings. I guess luck favors the prepared mind. Well, whether luck or destiny, this is important state and national legislation. We now have AEDs in many, many public locations, and it saves thousands of lives every year. In Wisconsin, for example, we have Project Adam. Project Adam was born out of a tragedy where a 17-year-old high school student had cardiac arrest during a basketball game and died. The Adam Project placed an AED in every school in Wisconsin. And further, they have now disseminated it to about two-thirds of the states in the country, and this program has saved hundreds of lives already. Including one right here in our community. Dr. Ofterheide shares the story of how Jake Lebinsky, program manager at MCW's Resuscitation Research Center, saved his friend's life. Jake plays basketball at a school, and on one Wednesday, his friend collapsed. 
Jake recognized correctly that his friend was in cardiac arrest, and he realized that Project Adam should have an AED in the school. He then mobilized the entire basketball team to run around the school, find this AED, and bring it back. He performed CPR. He applied the AED as soon as it arrived. His friend woke up, was talking, and doing fine even before the ambulance arrived. Learn all about Project Adam by going back and listening to episode number 28 of our show. Next, Dr. Ofterheide shares discoveries related to cardiopulmonary resuscitation, or CPR, which he says is rather inefficient in restoring normal blood flow. When you do good CPR, you are achieving about 15 to 16% of actual normal blood flow. Why is CPR so inefficient? Blood flows by cardiac compression. Ribs and sternum act as a bellows, and during chest compression, there's increased intrathoracic pressure relative to the rest of the body, and because of one-way valves in the heart, blood flows forward. Importantly, blood comes back up to the chest on the upstroke of CPR due to a small but very important negative intrathoracic pressure or small amount of suction in the chest. Discovering that during CPR, blood leaves the heart easily with compression, but doesn't return equally on the upstroke. We theorized that's where the inefficiency of blood flow during CPR occurs, that venous blood to return to the chest on the upstroke of CPR is fundamental to adequate forward blood flow. And with standard CPR, the vacuum in the chest on the upstroke is inadequate. And if that was the case, we had an opportunity. If we could augment the suction on the upstroke of CPR, we could pull more blood back up to the chest and increase forward blood flow during CPR. And this theory led to the development of the impedance threshold device or rescue pod. It's placed on any airway and works in the following way. When you push down on the chest, the device allows air out of the lungs. However, as the chest comes back up to its original position on the upstroke, it occludes the airway. He further explains it this way. Think of it like an old-fashioned bellows. And you put your hand over the nozzle of the bellows and kept it there and opened the bellows up, you would create suction within the bellows. And so essentially, that's what the impedance threshold device does. It does not interfere with breathing. When you squeeze the bag, air goes in and out of the lungs just like it normally would. And if the patient is resuscitated and starts breathing again and you keep it on the airway, there's a safety check valve that allows the patient to get oxygen. So that's how the rescue pod works. And boy, does it work. Standard CPR produces about minus one to minus two millimeters of mercury on the upstroke of CPR. But using the impedance threshold device, we get minus 10 to minus 15 millimeters of mercury, negative intrathoracic pressure or vacuum on the upstroke of CPR, pulling more blood back up to the chest. And not only more blood up to the chest. You also drain the brain of venous blood and your intracranial pressure goes down and goes down instantly. Which protects brain cells and brain function. After all, CPR isn't merely about the survival of a person in cardiac arrest. We have to be increasing survival with normal neurological outcome, returning them to their previous life. 
That's what we have to do. And this offered the opportunity to potentially achieve that. But not before receiving approval for using the impedance threshold device or rescue pod. So we were able to get an investigational device exemption from the Food and Drug Administration to do the first human trial here in Milwaukee. The FDA, quite frankly, was skeptical. But when the study was unblinded with the active valve, the blood pressure was an average of 85 millimeters of mercury versus standard CPR with a sham valve at 43 millimeters of mercury. We essentially doubled the blood pressure with the use of this device, and it increased good neurologic outcome. After four years of follow-up studies and research, producing results both exciting and unexpected, their findings were published. We published this in Lancet, and something happened actually in my academic career that's never happened before. The editor of Lancet came back to us before acceptance and said, you're underestimating the potential impact. I think you ought to say cardiopulmonary resuscitation with augmentation of negative intrathoracic pressure should be considered as an alternative to standard CPR to increase long-term survival after cardiac arrest. And they put it on the front cover, actually. So ultimately, it was approved. The Rescue Pod. The first device PMA approved by the FDA for use in cardiac arrest in the past 50 years. And it's the only device labeled by the FDA for use to improve survival. And it's currently being used in about 53 different EMS systems throughout the country. Also, Dr. Ofterheide has authored over 30 CPR training programs for the American Heart Association highlighting the CPR Anytime Kit. Myself and Ed Stapleton spent 10 years lobbying AHA to make a simple CPR training program. So they let us do it. It was a 23-minute course on a CD, and it's in all different languages and has trained hundreds of thousands of people in CPR. We were really proud of that contribution. A final discovery. One that Dr. Ofterheide says might reshape our perspective on resuscitation. I don't know about you, but I was taught that if the brain was without oxygen for three minutes, all is lost. Nothing could be further from the truth. Death is not an event. It is a process. And it's a lot longer than three minutes. And the resilience of the brain is much greater than generally appreciated. And this evidence increases the window of opportunity for effective interventions in the future. So, in recalibrating how we view survivorship via life-saving resuscitation measures, he tells us what the future holds. Well, you know, the future looks pretty bright. The impedance threshold device and intrathoracic pressure regulation works not just for cardiac arrest, but it works for hemorrhagic shock, septic shock, and traumatic brain injury and demonstrating significant benefit. Plus lots of additional ongoing work in all areas of resuscitation research. The key to it all being collaboration. No one person can do this alone. This has to be done with integral support and collaboration from a lot of people. The Department of Emergency Medicine, the Medical College of Wisconsin, the Department of Cardiology, Office of Research, the CTSI, our academic colleagues, and so many, many more. And following many acknowledgments and thanks, Dr. Ofterheide brings 35 years of resuscitation research full circle. We end kind of where we began. 
recognizing that none of this could ever have occurred without the creativity and vision of Joe Darren that created everything emergency in our community and models of excellence nationally and internationally. But in case you're thinking he's calling it a career, well, soon, but not just yet. You're not going to get rid of me that quickly. I need to complete my current obligations to my four ongoing National Institutes of Health grants, and I need to implement and complete the transition plan for an accomplished clinical trialist to come here and continue to improve survival and quality of life for the patients we care for through research. Then, when all of that is completed in about a year... I got some big fish to catch in Canada. Thank you. Dr. Ofterheide, we wish you equal success in that as well. That's all the time we have for this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. We hope you enjoyed hearing portions of this exceptional retrospective presentation. Looking back on the career of today's guest, Dr. Tom Ofterheide, and our thanks to him. I hope you've discovered something by listening to today's show. And I'm doubly hopeful that you'll join us again next time. CTSI Discovery Radio airs the third Friday of every month. Make an appointment on your calendar and join us for each episode. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and all of our affiliate partners and members, I'm Brian Belmer. Wishing you happier, healthier days ahead. For more information about research or to listen to the podcast of this or any of our shows on demand, please visit our website at ctsi.mcw.edu. You'll also find it wherever you listen to your other favorite podcasts, including Amazon, Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, produced, and hosted by Brian Belmer in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Reza Shakir.